0: guess you got your answer. They said, are they going to like this or are they going <laughs> to burn us at the stake? I said, I think they are going to like it. I'm glad you liked it, those of you who stood up. <laughs> <laughs> it is very cool to have musicians who can take an idea like this and make it a reality. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always loved the, that Bach piece, the Toccata and Fugue in D minor. It is... Uh, powerful and kind of spooky and you often hear it at Halloween and a few months ago I had an idea what if the pipe organ and the lead guitar played that as a duet as a as a duel and uh, I wanted to do it just because I thought it'd be cool and I think it was cool but uh, I also wanted to do it because I wanted to stir things up a little bit this morning musically you see for many people Sunday worship is all about the music It is how, in fact, we define our worship. So for some, a service without a pipe organ is not genuine genuine worship. It's not real worship. For others, they would say that the, the organ is passé and that it's only music with guitars and drums. Only modern music is really authentic. And so, in addition to having fun, what you saw up there could be a parable of the feud that is going on around the country... In churches that are being ripped apart by worship wars. The traditionalist versus the modernist. The, those who love the organ versus the, the guitar. So that might have been what you were looking at. Or you might have been getting a glimpse of a glorious fusion of, of old and new. Of God's creative excellence in worship. You might have been seeing that. Or what you saw might have been a complete distraction. Because you were too busy saying, do I like this? Do I not like that? I like that part. I don't like that part. What's with the smoke? And it's so loud. (laughs) And if that is what you were going through, you might have been missing the point entirely. Because what I want us to talk about this morning is what is worship? Really, what is worship? When you think about it, worship is kind of weird. I mean, the word is not a common word for us. And particularly when you use the two words together, worship, service. What does that mean? To the outsider who peers in on a Sunday morning. Someone who walks off the street and looks in here and sees all that's going on. All the singing and praying and eye-closing and preaching and hand-raising and cross-making and all of the rest. It is incomprehensible to them. It is weird. So what is this thing that we call worship? Worship. Well, the lyrics of an ancient hymn, which is called Psalm 96, actually give us some clues. So I would love for you to listen to the recitation of the first part of this psalm, Psalm 96, verses 1 through 10. And I want you to watch for hints about what the Lord says through his word he intends for worship to be. So here we go, Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. The heavens, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship Him in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him, all the earth. Say among the nations. The Lord reigns. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word, that we might discover anew what this thing of worship is all about, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We even argued about the title of this sermon, whether it was too far out there to say worship is weird, but I really do think there's a way in which worship is kind of weird and a little confusing. Not if you grew up with it. If you grew up with it, you're a kid and you grew up in the church, well, then all of this completely makes sense of you to you. But if you have never darkened the doors of a church, and our world increasingly has numbers of people who have never darkened the doors of the church, when they walk in here on a Sunday morning, they stumble in here, what are they going to find? What will be going through their heads? You got a stage up front with theater lighting and microphones. You've got seats set uh, spread out in front of the stage and people are seated inside of, in, in those seats. At the appointed hour, out come the musicians and they play for us. And then come the actors who speak uh, from, a, uh, from a, a book of poetry and they recite certain lines. They apparently are the warm-up act. Because then comes the headliner who stands in the middle with a spotlight and takes more time. And at some point, money is collected, which is presumably the cover charge to cover the show. <laughs> and sometimes the crowd applauds, and then they get up and they leave and vacate so that the, the, the next showing can occur. And it all starts over. Now, if you're a newcomer to this thing called worship, what is all of this going to look like to you? What, is, what are you going to compare it to? It's a performance, right? It's a play. It's a musical act. You've got the musicians and you've got the the actors up front. So what does that make all of you? You're the audience, right. You're the audience. And and what is the, the object of all of this? It's to entertain you. It's to delight you. It's to inspire you. And if we succeed, you will return and you will bring other seat fillers and we will extend our run. I'm glad you got that. I don't think Second Service is going to get that joke. (laughs) (laughs) I really do love it when you love my jokes. And if you don't like it, then you're going to go somewhere else next weekend. You're going to find better actors, better musicians, better special effects, better coffee. (laughs) Or maybe you'll go nowhere at all. Is that really what this is about, what we're doing here? Is it really a performance? This might seem like a crass way to illustrate this to you, but it's not actually my idea. It was first posed by a Danish theologian named Søren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard. He said that, we, that people think about uh, worship as the theater. And they tend to think about it this way. The preacher is the actor. The Lord is the prompter. You know, the one who's whispering the lines from behind the screen. And that makes the congregation, the audience, who are here to be entertained. And Kierkegaard says, but in Christian worship, that is all backwards. In Christian worship, the preacher and the musicians, we are the prompters. And we are whispering lines to you, which makes you the what? The actors. And who is the audience? God is the audience. We are the prompters. You are the actors. And God is the audience. And our psalm that we just read actually captures these ideas. We discover there that God is the receiver of worship. We are the bringers of worship. And there's one more party in the, in the crowd. The outsiders, they are the onlookers of worship. So I, let's, let's work through those. I want to start with the most important and in some ways the most countercultural idea. And that is this. God is the receiver of worship. Or put a different way. What we are doing right here, right now, is not primarily about us. It is primarily about God. The very, the very word worship comes from the contraction of two English, old English words, worth-ship. Worth-ship. And in worship, what we are doing is we are ascribing worth to something. Something that we value, something that we adore, something that we admire. When I hold my beloved Cindy in my arms and I whisper to her how much I love her and how, much, how spectacular a wife she is, which I do three times a day. I come home at noon just to do that. <laughs> it is a type of worship. Last Wednesday, New York City threw a, a ticker tape parade for the U.S. women's soccer team in, in, in celebration of, of their uh, World Cup victory. In a sense, that was an act of worship. The primary purpose for our gathering is to declare God's worth, to acknowledge his greatness. The psalm orders us to sing to the Lord, tell of his salvation, declare his glory, declare his marvelous works. The psalm reminds us that it is God who is the creator of all things and he deserves praise and glory for who he is and what he has done. We are even told that we ought to be a little bit afraid of him. Did you see it? Tremble before him, all the earth. This last week we had a reminder of what happens when the earth trembles, didn't we? Imagine if the whole earth begins to shake in delight or in fear or a little bit of both when the God of the universe comes near. Our God is an awesome creator and redeemer and sustainer of all things. We sometimes forget that. And then we come together in this time and we are reminded once again that it is God who is the worthy one. God who deserves to be acknowledged and loved and thanked and praised and even feared a little bit. It is God who is the receiver of worship. And that means that we are the bringers of worship. And by we, I mean believers. We who know God and love God. We who have received kindness from Him. We who have been saved by the Lord Jesus. We who know that every good gift comes from His hands. Believers are the ones to whom this psalm is addressed. They're the ones that the psalmist is talking to primarily. And in it, the psalm prescribes all kinds of ways that we should worship God. And it's a list of action words. Sing, bless, bless. Tell, declare, ascribe, bring, come, tremble, say. We are the performers. We are the actors. We are the bringers of worship. Which explains another kind of weird thing why we call it a worship service. Have you ever pondered that? Why do we call it a worship service? Why don't we call it a worship performance? Why don't we call it a worship show? Why don't we call it a worship act? Why don't we call it a worship gathering? We call it a worship service because that's what we are doing. We are here serving Almighty God with our worship. When we gather and sing and pray and listen and allow the Spirit to speak to us, change our hearts, change our practices, that are, those are the ways in which we serve our God who is Worthy. Worship is not then primarily about what I receive. Listen to this. Worship is not then primarily about what I receive. It is primarily about what I bring to God. That's good theology. Now, I will say, I'm, I'm not saying that we believe this. I'm not sure even how much we believe this, even if we think we do. Because we ourselves are a product of our entertainment culture. And we tend to assume that everything is about us, including worship. And that's why if we choose to criticize worship, and I know you all never do, but if anyone in another church ever chose to criticize worship, they do so with saying things like this. I didn't like the music. The sermon didn't feed me. The people weren't friendly. I couldn't find a good place to sit. Now, none of these issues are irrelevant, actually. Music is like a language through which the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. That matters. It is helpful if the sermon is actually engaging and and hangs together in some way that's cohesive. Uh, Friendly co-worshippers always makes it more pleasant. And a comfortable seat with a good view is always a plus, right? So then let me ask you this question. If the music sucks, if the sermon sucks, if the people suck and you're stuck behind the pillar, can you worship God? My wife, Cindy, reminded me of a trip to England where we went to Edensong at a beautiful cathedral. And she confesses that at the beginning, this very traditional service, she found it boring. And then she said she began to do some interior work. And she realized that any worship that is spirit-led and Christ-honoring is pleasing to God. And so she decided that she was going to change her attitude, her heart, her mind about it. And she was going to pour herself into worshiping God in an unfamiliar way. And she will tell you that it was one of the most significant worship experiences of her life. Worship for us is, first of all, a verb. It is our action. It is something we do. It is not something that is done to us or for us. And if we believe this, if we take the psalmist seriously at that, then it might mean that we change the way that we behave and even prepare for worship. So I'm about to I'm about to, to gore your ox. I probably am going to leave no ox ungored by the end of this sermon. So just brace yourself. Bring out a hanky to cover the stench of the blood. Uh, if we really believe that God is primarily about this worship is primarily about God, it would affect our punctuality. has a boss who would tolerate the excuse for repeated tardiness. I just couldn't get it together this morning. If the Queen of England said, I will be here next week at 9 o'clock, I would love an audience with all of you. How many of you are going to kind of wander in 15 minutes late to Her Majesty? Well, His Majesty is here waiting for us every week on time. (laughs) Thank you for that smattering of applause. I'm But if we really did understand that we are coming here to meet God, then what we might do to prepare ourselves would be are you say brace yourself? We might c- c- come early. <laughs> we might sit down in the pew. We might offer a prayer. We might read the text. We might prepare ourselves so that we would be more fitted for the worship that we are about to bring to almighty God. Coming early to church, mind blowing, I know. Just a thought. If we really think worship is primarily about God, it might also impact our frequency. God's rhythm for corporate worship is weekly. It's built into the Sabbath, which was a gift to us, not to him. The Sabbath is designed and created to bring us new life. And every seven days, God intends that we would come together in community to meet him. So if on a weekend you find yourself asking the question, should we go to church this week? What does that say about your view of worship? And if the decider is an answer to questions like this, well, who's preaching? Is the sermon, is is the choir singing? What time is the game? Those are statements of a consumer, not a worshiper if nothing else comes along that's any better, I guess we can go to church. I'm sure God is enthused with our enthusiasm. The psalmist also talks about our giving as worship. Did you notice? Bring an offering, he says, and come into our courts. What does your giving say about your devotion to God? Heck, we give a 15%, even a 20% tip to a a waiter that serves us a good meal and begrudge the Lord his 10% tithe, often hiding behind the words, all the church does is ask for money, which is a crock, and you all know it. Does our giving reflect our devotion to God? How about this? How about the way that we sing? One of the best things about going to our annual general assembly where all of the churches come together is listening to 700 pastors when they sing their hearts out to the Lord. It is powerful. Powerful. The psalmist begins this psalm by urging us in a Trinitarian style to sing, sing, sing. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Give it your gusto, he says. Give it your all. He doesn't say sing well. He says sing out. Sing joyously. Make a joyful noise and not a good noise. Now, if we find ourselves focusing on the quality of the musicians instead of our own exuberant participation, we are focused on the wrong thing. And by the way, could I point out what kind of a song we are urged to sing? What is that song? Sing to the Lord a new song. Did you see that? Maybe he meant by that a modern song, a newly composed song. Maybe he meant by that an old song that is sung in a new way. What he clearly did not mean is there is one and only one type of music that God loves and nothing else will please him. I want you to hear me on this, all of us, both traditionalists and modernists. When your musical preference becomes your highest value in a worship service, that is idolatry. So if we really understood this, if we really understood that our primary purpose for gathering here is to bring glory to God, I wonder, would it change any of your behaviors? Is there any of my behaviors that need changing? Now, I will say this. Worship is not only about God. In fact, We are here by his invitation. We are here because he thinks it's good for us. And so when we gather in worship, when we accept his weekly invitation to experience him in community, it's a chance for us to be assured of our forgiveness. It's a chance to be reminded of our salvation in Jesus Christ. It's a chance to share in a transcendent experience we don't otherwise have that lifts us even for a moment into the presence of the heavenlies. It is a chance to listen to God's word proclaimed, to have our spirits lifted, to have our tears dried, to have our loneliness assuaged. A genuine worship encounter with God will impact us. When Moses went on Mount Sinai and he was in the presence of God, remember the result? His face was shining in the experience. We cannot help but be transfigured by worship. But hear me. That transformation is a byproduct of genuine worship. It is not the purpose of it. Our question going out of here today and out of every service, when we leave through the doors of amnesia, our question to ourselves should be not, did it please me or did it speak to me or did it feed me or did it fill me or did it meet my needs? Our question walking out those doors should be, God, were you pleased by what I offered to you today? God is the receiver of our worship. We are the actors, the bringers of worship. But interestingly, the psalm mentions a third party. Did you see it? The unbelievers. The not yet followers. Every time this psalmist, in fact, all of the Old Testament, when you read the words, the peoples or the nations, they're talking about the non-Jews. The outsiders to to the chosen people. But notice that even the outsiders are invited to be onlookers of worship. Listen again to this phrase. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Do you hear that? Sing in such a way so that they can eavesdrop and hear what you are doing. One of the ways that spiritual outsiders become spiritual insiders is as they observe us worshiping. The sincerity of our worship. The things that we say and sing and pray about God in this time. The look upon our face. The way we are using our hands as we lift them up to receive praise or the blessing. Or lift them up in praise. Or dip them into our pockets for the offering. Or pass the communion elements one to another. All of these things become an invitation to them, to the outsider, to come and meet God. And we hear it in the psalmist's invitation. Invitation. He invites them to join in. Remember the last part of the, of the psalm. Ascribe to the Lord. Oh, families of the peoples. That's the Gentiles he's talking to. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Join us, he says. Come and join us in worshiping this great God. Come and meet him. Come and be astounded by him. Come and be transformed by him. Come along. There's room for you here. Incredibly, not all Christians welcome outsiders. Not all churches welcome outsiders. And there are some who are actually averse to the idea. There are some who will assert that worship, this experience, is only for the believer. And therefore, we should make no concession to the unbelievers. But if you will recall, the largest courtyard in the temple was the court of the Gentiles. The largest court in the temple square was the court of the Gentiles. And the reason that Jesus was ticked off that day when he tipped over the money changers' tables was that they had turned God's house, which was intended to be a house of prayer for all nations, into a den of thieves. God longs to draw the unbelievers to become believers. God longs to draw the outsiders in. And we are the means by which he accomplishes that sometimes. That is why in this last year, we have tried to be more intentional about using less insider language. We have tried to be more intentional about our hospitality, about making a place in our pews and in our hearts and in our parking lots and in our foyer. We are not watering down the message of the gospel, not in the least, not in the least. We are simply trying to make it more accessible to those who have yet to discover that God loves them and that Jesus Christ died to save them and make make them his own. Here's the thing. Every human being was created for this. Every human being worships something. It's just that most of the world worships useless idols, as the psalmist puts it. Most of the world worships things like money and fame and power and celebrity and sex and sports. Just look at the Seahawks swag that is being worn on any game day. Well, for one hour, once a week, we gather in God's house with God's people and with interested onlookers, interested eavesdroppers to worship the only one who is really worthy of worship. And in that moment, we declare, God, this is about you. This is about loving and thanking and ascribing to you the glory that you deserve. We're not here to be entertained. We are here to entertain you, to perform for you acts of praise and worship and sacrifice that we hope will delight you. For you are worthy of our worship. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. You know, this sermon churned in me for a year uh, I think worship has been a big part of our life in this last year, has been thinking through this together. And it, this one really has been churning in me. In some ways, it might seem wasteful to preach this sermon on a beautiful July weekend when lots of people might be vacationing and other enticing objects of worship are theirs for the having. But I thought, what the heck? You're here, aren't you? You're here. You didn't decide to be somewhere else today. You decided that this was the place that you needed to be. So good on you. You decided to make God your priority this morning. Good on you. So let's start right here. If a thousand of us decided that we were going to change our hearts and our attitudes and our practices. If a thousand of us made the countercultural decision that we were going to make worship about God. About how we please him rather than how he pleases us. That would go a long way to changing our whole worship culture. So this message is a gift to you, I trust. Faithful worshipers, I urge you once more, sing a new song to the Lord. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. You are greatly to be praised. You deserve our worship, our glory, our honor. All that we have, all that we are, all that we do is from your hand and for your glory. And so we pray that you would receive this gift now, this gift of praise, of hearts open to you, of people who are longing to love you better. We pray that you would receive this gift. Almighty God, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised.